Well, let's open in the word of prayer, and uh, then we'll get started into our uh, second lesson and hallmarks of a biblical church. So let's ask the Lord to bless our time tonight. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can gather here in this place and worship you. Thank you for Rudy and his talent and his gift of leading us in song and praise. And Lord, we do exalt your name. We do look to you as our only source of hope in this troubled world in which we live. Father, we thank you for um, snatching us from the, the pit of sin, the flames of hell, and, and Lord, saving our soul. There's nothing that we could have done to do that on our own. And Father, we are eternally grateful for your work in our lives and opening our eyes to your truth. And so, Lord, we pray tonight that you would just uh, minister your word to our hearts as we look at what it means um, to have a high view of Scripture, a high view of God's word. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, um, just uh, teach us what you desire us to learn tonight from the texts of Scripture that we'll be looking at. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't forget, on Sunday, we start our new series through the Gospel of John. So it's always a daunting task to start a longer book because you don't know how long it's going to take. Some people have already asked me, I said, I have the slightest idea. It could be two years, it could be three years, it could be four years, I don't know. But we're committed to the task, amen? And so we're going to learn a lot about the Lord, and uh, we'll learn uh, a lot about the gospel and the character, the John the Apostle on Sunday, just kind of as an introduction to the, the text that we'll be looking at for the next several years. But tonight we're in a topical series, which a lot of times we don't do topical series here. Usually we're in a, a text of Scripture and going through a book of the Bible. But tonight we've been doing this series on hallmarks of a biblical church. And I explained last week, a lot of times we live in a very transitional place in the Bay Area, people coming and going. And people always ask me, how do you know uh, when you move, where do we find a good church? Well, hopefully, if you listen to this series to the end, you'll be able to identify uh, a biblical church, which is a lot better than just being a good church. All right, We want our churches to be biblical. And so tonight we're going to be looking at the, um, the idea that uh, there's a high view of Scripture that a biblical church holds. Last week, we looked at a high view of God. But this week, we're going to look at a high view of Scripture. I'm reminded when we were in, when my wife and I went on our trip, we went to Italy, and we went to uh, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And many of you have seen that or been there. And I just did a little research, and it was kind of interesting. Um, it's, it's one of the great architectural wonders of the world. Uh, but on August 8th, 1173... That's a while ago, right? <clears throat> um, the Italian city of Pisa began to work on what would eventually become the, the most famous landmark in the town of Pisa. And it was to be this freestanding bell tower. This is what the plan was for the cathedral that was there in the city. And uh, the tower was designed to be eight stories tall, 185 feet in height. And the construction took almost... 200 years in three different phases. You say, why did it take so long? Well, they had breaks for wars that were going on and other weather-related things. All kinds of stuff went on. It took them 200 years to complete it. And once they, they, they construction reached the second floor, um, 
history tells us only about five years into the project, in the year 1178, the builders of this Leaning Tower of Pisa, which was not supposed to be the Leaning Tower of Pisa, it was just supposed to be the Tower of Pisa, they realized they had a significant problem. And uh, because the tower had already, just at the second level, begun to sink and to lean to the one side. And it's become this incredible landmark that we know today. And this obviously caused a lot of concern. And it was caused by two problems. The, the architects say the, the first one was it was built on unstable subsoil. And it was, it was built on a soil that was a lot softer than what they would usually build a building like this of this height on. And the second problem was that the foundation wasn't deep enough. They didn't go down deep enough. They only dug down 10 feet. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, go down to El Camino and look at some of the buildings they're building, and you look over, and it's like, whoa, it's way down there, right? Um, the foundation is incredibly deep. Well, they, they only had 10 feet foundation to support this tower of 185 feet tall. So I don't know who the architect was, but obviously maybe he flunked out of school or something. But the tower has stood, though, for some you know, 800 years plus. And as you know, it's become famous. It leans 13 feet, basically, off the vertical. And when we were there, you can take pictures, you know, you, you take pictures of you standing away from it and you're holding your hand up. It looks like you're pushing it back, you know, like you're holding up the tower. Um, and within the last several years, they've actually made a lot of effort to, to reinforce it to where they think that they have it good for several more years. But it, for the first time in history, they say it stopped. They, they arrested the, the leaning. It's not continuing to lean because if it does that, it's eventually going to fall over. Um, but one day, experts say that unless something else happens, eventually this tower will fall over. And it's pretty amazing because you're walking right around the tower. You can go up in the tower. I mean, it's pretty crazy. Uh, and the reason was is what? It's built on a bad foundation. It was built on a bad foundation. And... As I thought about that and reading our, our text that we'll read for tonight and what we're going to look at tonight, um, I thought of, of you know, not just the, the buildings of the church, which can be built on a bad foundation, all right, but also the living organism of the church, the true church, um, can be built on a faulty foundation. And what happens when that happens to a church, when it's built spiritually on a faulty foundation, over time, just like a regular physical foundation, cracks begin to appear. And um, if it's left unaddressed, what happens? The church will eventually collapse. The church will eventually collapse. The right foundation, as we're going to see tonight, for the church always, always, always must be the word of God. Always must be scripture. Any other foundation won't do. And last week, we began to look at these hallmarks of a biblical church, and we said, you know, that, and we, we, we were using that term hallmark, and I explained why I chose that word, because it, it comes from the Goldsmith Hall in London. And what they did is they, they had the responsibility, it was founded all the way back in the 1200s, it still exists today, this Goldsmith's hall in London, and it existed primarily, and the responsibility of it was to test the purity of metals, silver, gold, and now they do even in more than that. And whenever a piece of metal met the genuineness of the goldsmith's hall, they would put their mark on it, hence hallmark. That's where that word comes from. 
And so when we think of the hallmarks of a biblical church, we want to focus on something that will prove to us, will show us that uh, it is genuine, that is, it is authentic, that it is, is real. Uh, and so we looked last week at 1 Timothy 3, uh, verse 14, 1 Timothy 3, verse 14, and, and Paul writes in some sense here, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you. He's writing to Timothy, his disciple, his young pastor, so that in verse 15 he says, if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. So Paul was writing his young pastor, disciple, student, Timothy, saying, look, I want to come and I want to explain this to you in person, but in case I don't get there, i got to write you a letter because this is so important, you got to get this message even before I get there. And he says, I want you to know how you ought to behave in the household of God. And then he says this, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Now, the key word in that verse 14 is the word really behave, that you may know how you ought to act or behave in the household of God. It, it speaks of our conduct, right? And that is affected by our first hallmark, having a high view of God. It means to conduct oneself by certain principles. And so Paul's basically saying, look, if I'm not able to get there, if, I, if I'm not able to come when I thought I was able to come to Ephesus, I'm going to write you this letter, and I wanted you to share these principles with you on how you can conduct yourself in Christ's church. Now, there's, that indicates to us that there are right ways, right, and wrong ways to conduct yourself within the church of God. So we don't get the privilege of creating our own way of doing church. God has already established that for us. And we're not just talking here about methodology. You know, we're not talking about um, even styles. You know, you have traditional churches, right? You have more contemporary churches. Both of those churches can run themselves by these hallmarks of a biblical church. And both a traditional and a contemporary church can choose not to run their church according to these principles that Paul is giving Timothy. And so it's not, not traditional, it's not contemporary, we're not concerned with that. We're not talking about methodology. What are we talking about? We said we're talking about biblical philosophy of ministry. What is a biblical philosophy of ministry? And we defined it as this last week. We said it's a set of non-negotiable biblical principles that guide all the choices and decisions made in a church. So we're not just off on our own, doing our own you know, willy-nilly, whatever feels right for today. We're saying, no, what, we have a set of biblical principles that guide our decision-making within the church. And so that is, is very important to know. And, and this is not the only place that you see this, 1 Timothy. You see it in 2 Timothy, and you see it also in the, the epistle of Titus, uh, the pastoral epistle of Titus. These are pastoral epistles. These were written for this very thing. It's, it's how life in the church should should be lived out. That's why Paul wrote these, these epistles. And so we see these hallmarks, and, and we mentioned them last week, a high view of God, a high view of Scripture, a biblical view of man, a biblical view of the church, and then also keeping the gospel and the place of Christ central to the church. These are the five, uh, you could say, 
hallmarks that we're going to be talking about. We talked about the first one last week, having a high view of God. And we're not going to go through all that because we don't have time. But we, we just said that a biblical church understands God's imminence, that the, the idea that he is a reachable God. And yet, at the same time, he is also holy. <laughs> He's totally set apart from us. All right? And we talked about that extense, extensively last week. But tonight we want to look at this, the second one, and it's, it's the high view of Scripture. What does it mean to have a high view of Scripture? Um, when we say a church, a biblical church, has a high view of Scripture, what are we talking about? Does that mean you take the, the Scripture and you lift it up high? Is that what we're talking No, we're not talking about that. Well, we want to look at the next verse here, 1 Timothy 3, uh, 15, basically. And, and Paul talks a little bit about this. He gives us the idea that when we have a true biblical philosophy of ministry, that demands that we have a high respect, a high regard, not only for God, right, as the one we're worshiping, but also for his word, the Bible. And so this is what it's very foundational to the church. And so in verse 15, he says, if I delay, if I, if I can't get there, you may know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of what? Of truth, he says. And so the one thing that we want to, to be clear, he's speaking here about the church. He says it right there in verse 15, which is the church of the living God. Well, what do we mean by the church? I'm not talking about buildings. The church is not a building. Right? We, we, we understand that, right? The church is not made up of just buildings. So when, it kind of bothers me when people say, oh, you need to come to my church, like they own the church or something. It's not our church because the church is not just a bunch of buildings. It's, it's made up of people. The word church, ecclesia, means it's a called-out assembly or a called-out congregation. And by the way, it doesn't necessarily have a spiritual holiness tone to it. The, the Greek word ekklesia could mean people are called out for a riot. You could say Black Lives Matter is an ekklesia. It's a called out assembly. Now that's a whole lot different than a church. But I, I just want you to understand that that word is not a holy word. It's used secular, secularly in history as well as in, in scripture. But the word itself means a called out assembly or congregation. It means people who assemble. And so he says here, Peter is writing Timothy, and he says the people who are the church, the church of the living God, that means that the church belongs to who? God. The church belongs to God. The church belongs to Christ. This isn't our church. Uh, this isn't my church. This isn't the elder's church. This is what? This is God's church. And more specifically, he says it other places in the New Testament, this is Christ's church. This is Christ's church. It belongs to him. This is the church for which he died. He bought this church. It's a group of people who've confessed him, Christ, as being Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, as belonging, as serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he continues here in verse 15. He says... The church, and then he says this, is the, the pillar or buttress or support 
of the truth. That word pillar, pillar there means it's, a bearing, it's bearing the weight of. Paul may have been reminding Timothy of that great temple of Artemis that stood in the day of this writing in Ephesus. Incredible place. Had huge, massive pillars that supported it. Maybe he's reminding Timothy, this is, this is what the church is to be. And he's saying this church, the church of Christ, is to be the pillar, the support of the truth. The church exists to hold up the truth, to support the truth. The church does not exist to feed the hungry. The church does not exist to have social committees to do social action and all that. The church exists to support the truth. And then he says this, and to buttress or support the truth. That, that word has more of an idea of the foundation on which the structure lies. So pillar is the actual thing that holds it up. But the buttress speaks of the, the foundation that maybe you don't see. And the church holds up the truth. It supports the truth. The church does not come up with the truth. We don't invent the truth. We don't generate the truth. Where does that come from? That comes from God. That comes from the apostles. That comes from the prophets indirectly by God. But we support the tr truth. We, we teach the truth. Uh, we're called to guard the truth. We are the pillar and the support of the truth. And you say, well, where does this truth come from? <laughs> kind of an important question. It only has one source. The truth can only come from one place, and our, our Lord Jesus Christ defines it himself. He identifies it. If you turn over to John, the Gospel of John, we'll get there in a couple of years, but John 17, <laughs> toward the end, John 17, look at what Jesus says here in his high priestly prayer, John 17, 17. He, he prays for the disciples, and he says in verse 17, he says this, uh, verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. But then he says, sanctify them, set them apart in the truth. And what does he say? Your word is truth. See that? Your word is truth. The truth comes from God's words and God's words alone. The truth doesn't come from my words. The truth doesn't come from your words this is a consistent message of Scripture over and over and over again. Even in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, 28, it says this. You don't even have to turn there. I'll just read it for you. Oh, Lord God, you are God. Your words are truth, it says in 2 Samuel. Or in Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. That, is, that means they are genuine. They are true as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. In other words, there's no error, there's no falsehood, there's no, none of that dross in the word of God. The words of God are absolutely, purely truth. Psalm 119, verse 151, it says, O Lord, all of your commandments are truth. And you can, you can go through scripture on your own and do your own little word search and, and find out this is, this is a constant theme. This isn't just three verses I pulled out. There's many verses that point this out. God's word is truth, and he is the source of it. So a genuinely, you could say, biblical church will have an exalted view, a high view of scripture. But what does that mean? 
Well, let's see if we can get a little more specific. Um, because as you work your way through the New Testament, especially in the pastoral epistles through these three letters that were written to pastors, you begin to, to uncover Paul's view of Scripture, which I think is pretty important. And, and Paul is certainly wanting Timothy and Titus to embrace his own view of what Scripture is. He's wanting us to embrace it as well, and any biblical church for that matter. And so when you look over Paul's shoulder as he's teaching these, these young pastors in the faith, and, and we understand what a high view of Scripture looks like, it has certain qualities, or it embraces, is confident of certain qualities of Scripture. And this is what Paul draws out for us. And in the context of, of these, these letters to teach Timothy and us how to do church, Paul expects us to have the same confidence in these qualities that he has. He's giving us a kind of a model. And these qualities appear throughout the pastoral epistles, but just turn over to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we just want to spend a little bit of time here. There's a lot of other passages we could turn to, but we just want to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and, and look at uh, starting in verse 10. 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 10. You, who's you? Timothy, right? However, have followed my teaching, my conduct, and my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me, look at this, at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I have endured, yet from them all the Lord has rescued me. Notice that Paul here mentions what? Persecutions. He mentions them. And he cites three cities. And we don't have time to do this. You can do this on your own. But Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. You go back into the book of Acts, and you can see that in each one of these cases where these cities are mentioned, and when the persecution came, guess who it came from? The religious community. It didn't come from the pagans. It came from the people who, quote, worshiped God. In fact, you know, if you go to... Uh, 2 Timothy 3, look at verses 1 through 9 just quickly. And look at what he's talking about. I'll just read through it quickly. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness. So who's he talking to? He's talking to people in the church. This is who he's talking to. But denying its power. And then he says this, avoid such people. For among them are those, and we, we mentioned this when we were in Jude, those who creep into households and captivate, capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Verse 7, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the, what's it say? The truth. There it is. So 
he's talking about false teachers is who he's talking about. He's talking about people, religious people, who are professing Christ, but they're not possessing Christ. Well, guess what happens when Paul gets to those three cities? He's attacked. He's persecuted. And guess who's persecuting him? It's the teachers of false religious, religion. Verse 12 in the text there, uh, 2 Timothy 3, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. By whom? Who are they going to be persecuted by, Paul? Well, in the context, it's the false religious establishment. That's who he's speaking of. And guess what? He was one. Remember Paul, when he was Saul, right? He was a Pharisee. He was part of that organization. He knew exactly what they were doing. Verse 13, it's only going to get worse. Look at verse 13. While evil people, imposters, will go from bad to worse, it says. Deceiving and being deceived. In other words, they will deceive people even as they themselves are deceived by Satan. Now notice the contrast at the beginning of verse 14. But as for you, he says. In other words, in spite of what I just told you, Timothy, I'm holding you to a different standard. You're not to be like these people. You're not to be like these people who are professing Christ but not possessing Christ, who are, you know, pretending to be religious, and yet they're rotten to the core. He says, you, however, as for you, verse 10 there, you, however, have followed my teaching. Um, when he says, but as for you, this is a, a stark, emphatic contrast. That's what Paul is trying to point out. He says, you continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Who did he learn it from? Paul. And how from childhood, not only from Paul, but even from his mother, his grandmother, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul here introduces the scriptures to us. He begins to give us a little glimpse of the qualities of the scripture that he himself is convicted of. He, he holds these convictions for himself. See, if we're going to have a high view of Scripture, the first thing, and this is where we, we get down to verse 16, we know this verse, the first quality we see here is all Scripture is what? Breathed out by God. That's the first quality. The first quality is the inspiration of Scripture. God breathed. This, this speaks that the, the, the Word of God is a, of divine origin. It's not just a bunch of guys sitting around thinking, hey, let's write a Bible. Well, okay, cool. <laughs> what are you going to, oh, I'll write this book and you write that book. And, okay, great. No. That's not how it happened. The New Testament tells us that these men were moved along by the Holy Spirit. That when we study the scripture, we are studying God's word. It is God breathed. This is the first quality of scripture. Scripture is inspired and it's inerrant in both the New and the Old Testament. I know a lot of 
believers, I've met a lot of believers who, you know, when you, when you mention the Old Testament, oh, I don't believe in that. I, I, I just follow the New Testament. It's like, well, wait a minute. What are you talking about? You don't follow the Old Testament. Well, that's for the Jews. That's not for the Christians. Are you, you know, and they're just misinformed. A lot of them, they're just ignorant. They don't understand that. See, Scripture, when it speaks of Scripture, it's speaking of both the New and the Old Testament. Verse 16 makes it very clear. All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is God-breathed. Now, what does Paul mean by all Scripture? Well, clearly, he means the Old Testament. I mean, if you go back to verse 15, he refers to these sacred writings that Timothy learned from his mother and, and from his grandmother. That's a technical term, sacred writings. It's a technical term for the Hebrew scriptures, which are found in the Old Testament. So he's talking about the Hebrew scriptures, but he's not even stopping there. He keeps going, and if you, if you look back at, at 1 Timothy 5, 1 Timothy 5, verse 18, He's talking about the elders here and the fact that they should be compensated and some of them should be compensated by the church. And then in verse 18, he says, for the scripture says. See that? And then he quotes two passages if you follow the text. The first one is out of Deuteronomy 25. The second, a laborer is worthy of his wages, is from the Gospel of Luke. So he's quoting both the Old and the New Testament. And so we're talking the New Testament, and he calls it Scripture. Uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, um, all the way down at the, at the end of that, those, those couple verses there, it says, as they do the other Scriptures, talking about twisting Scripture and things like that. He refers to that. Peter calls Paul's letters scripture and so it's not just the old testament it's the new testament as well so the the word inspired it sounds kind of like inspired it's kind of like you know what does that mean god's breathing in no it's just the opposite god is breathing out it's god breathed it's, it speaks of the bible's divine origin all scripture both Old and New Testament, is breathed out by God. It's not God breathing into the Bible, but all Scripture is breathed out by God. It has its source in God. And we have to understand all of it is. All of it. Even the parts that when we read, we fall asleep and we go, oh, this makes no sense at all. It's inspired. And it's, it's the same thing when you when you speak, when you take a deep breath and your lungs fill up and you compress your lungs and the voice comes up through your vocal cords and then you make uh, movement with your tongue and your lips to pronounce a word. Okay, When someone does that, you say they're speaking words. It's the same thing when it comes to the Scripture. These are God's words. This is what Paul is saying. All Scripture is the product of the mind of God. That's why we should have such a high view of it. It's the voice of God. It's as if God himself were speaking to you personally. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul writes this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, he says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed, look, 
to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Verse 11, for who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person? In other words, I don't know what you're thinking right now. Uh, who knows? But you know what you're thinking, hopefully. <laughs> I mean, if you don't, we got a problem, right? You know what you're thinking. The spirit of the person does, which is in him. And then he says, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. You can't understand the ways of God. You can't understand the thoughts of God. Verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why did we receive the spirit? Why do we have this Holy Spirit? Why when Jesus left the earth did he say, hey, I'm sending you a comforter. I'm giving you something to help you out here while you're on earth. Well, he tells us right there in verse 13 or verse 12 that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about the revelation from God which Paul has been given. He and the apostles. They, they had direct revelation from God. We don't receive that today because the Bible's complete. We have the full revelation of God. And so it's very, very important that we understand that it is completely inspired. It's also, Scripture is inspired, it's inerrant in its words, in its words. And, um, you know, this is, this is very, very important for us. He's not saying that, you know what, only the ideas of Scripture are from God. But he's saying the very words of Scripture are from God. Uh, if the church has a high view of God and his word, then I believe that church will believe that the Scripture has, in fact, been breathed out in its very words from the mind of God, from the mouth of God. If a church truly believes all Scripture is breathed out by God, then guess what? That God-breathed word will affect how it behaves in the church. They're not going to be out there trying to do their own thing, making up their own church strategy and all this other stuff churches come up with today. Because Scripture is inspired and inerrant in everything it teaches and reports as well. So it's inspired in both the Old and New Testament. It's inspired in the words. It's also inspired in everything that it teaches and reports. People have been trying to discredit the Bible for many, many years. Not going to happen. Why? Because it's God's word. It's God's word. But Saul's, Paul, Paul saw the scripture, and he saw the quality of inspiration, and he also connected this with a high view of Scripture. He says, wow, because it's inspired, that, that puts it up there on the shelf. Well, number two, there's another quality that we see here in the text, and that is relevancy, relevancy. We'll call it relevancy. Look at what it says back in, in verse 16. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God 
and is what? Profitable. It's profitable. That word means beneficial. It means useful. And notice it says there in verse 16, all scripture, the whole, the entire word of God is not just breathed out by God, but it's profitable. It's beneficial. It was true in the first century, and it's just as true today. You know, I'm sick and tired of especially pastors saying, well, you know, our church, we make the Bible relevant. That, that just ticks me off. We don't need to make the Bible relevant. It simply is relevant because it's the word of God. We don't need to make God relevant. If God has breathed out his own words to us, if God has spoken his own words to us, I mean, what in the world could be more relevant? You look around, he created everything around you. I think that would be an important thing. <clears throat> he created you as a being. He knows everything about you. We don't need to make God relevant. We don't need to make his God relevant. We don't need to make his word relevant. At the same time, I think we have to understand this. The fact that the word of God is relevant doesn't mean it will always appear to be relevant to us it doesn't always mean that even to those of us who are religious in nature those of us who are christians sometimes we read bible verses and we go well, how, how do we apply this see it's it's very important to, to, to understand that the, the the bible is relevant it is profitable for us Look at 2 Timothy 4.3, because he explains here that this time is coming, 2 Timothy 4.3, when people, who are these people? These are people who are connected to the church. This is a pastoral epistle. He's talking to a pastor. He's talking to people within his church. He said, there's a time coming when people within the church will not endure sound teaching. They won't endure it. They'll be like a little child and put their hands up over their ears and go, blah, 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 I don't want to hear that. But have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. This is what we see going on in church after church after church today. When they're looking for pastors, when they're looking for elders to lead them, what are they looking for? They're looking for somebody that's going to tell them what they want to hear. Just tell me what, what I want to hear. This is how someone like Rick Warren started his whole ministry at Saddleback Church. He went around the community, took a survey, and asked people why they didn't come to church. And when, he told, when they told him why they didn't come to church, he said, well, you know what? I'm going to create a church that doesn't ask for your money. I'm going to create a church that's not full of hypocrites. I'm going to create a church, you know, so you need to come to this church. What was he doing? He was just giving the people what they wanted. That's a good marketing thing, right? And by the way, that's his background, so he knew what he was doing, and it worked. He's got a major church, major ministry. But I would say that's not a biblical approach. Because you're just telling people what they want to hear. 
You start down that road and what happens? You begin catering your messages to not what God wants, but to what the people want. Verse 4, it says, And we'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So even though the Bible is always relevant, it's eternally relevant all the time, um, there will be people, even religious people, even people who are connected to the church of Jesus Christ, who will turn away from it. And they'll say, it's not relevant to me anymore. I don't want to hear that doctrine. I don't want to hear that anymore. Give me something else. I mean, I, I just challenge you, read through the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and, and notice how many times, how often Paul tells them to teach the people the word of God instead of the things that the people want to hear. It's amazing how many times it comes up, over and over and over, not only here in this passage, but throughout 1 and 2 Timothy and, and even Titus. Paul's constantly saying, you know what, all they want to hear about are these endless genealogies. They're fascinated by all this stuff. And he's telling Timothy, don't go there. Don't take the bait. You just teach the Bible. You just teach the scripture. You just teach the word. Don't give them what they think they want. Because the Bible is what? Eternally relevant. You give them the word of God. And a church with a high view of scripture... Scripture will not believe that it has to make the Bible relevant to make God relevant. It will be convinced that God and the Bible are eternally relevant. If, if, if God has breathed out his message, that's relevant enough. And so he says, wherever there's a high view of God, Wherever there's a high view of Scripture, people will embrace the relevancy of God and His Word. So not only inspiration, but relevancy. Number three, another quality I think he points out here in the text is sufficiency. Sufficiency. Um, the Bible is sufficient to lead, he says, you to salvation. And for everything you need in your Christian life. It's completely sufficient. This is why when we teach people to share their testimony, it's so important you include Scripture verses, literal Scripture verses in your testimony. Because that's what's sufficient to lead someone to, to salvation, not your teary-eyed story, how you came to Christ. I mean, it may be a wonderful story, but it's the scripture that's going to give them that salvation. Now go back to verse 15. Because he, he kind of uh, points out here, 3, 3.15. He says, and how from childhood, this really means, that word childhood means from infancy, which, you know, uh, Kai, Mariana, this is this driving, this message is for you. This is such a great argument for teaching your kids the Bible. 
you know, as a youth pastor, when I was a youth pastor, I constantly dealt with parents who said, well, we don't want to push little Johnny to, to into anything, and we just want him to discover everything for himself. And, you know, if he wants to wander over here and play with that, that's fine. That's so dangerous. When you have the truth and you know the truth, and you're unwilling to teach that to your children because you want them to, you know, study their own navel and figure it out for themselves, that, that's not being a very good parent. It's very important you teach your kids the Bible. That's why we have Sunday school. That's why we strive to minister to children. Verse 15, how from childhood his, his mother and his grandmother made this known to him apparently. Um, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. We said that's the Old Testament. And notice, this is the Old Testament. And look at what it says. What is the Old Testament, the sacred writings, able to do? They are able to make you wise for salvation. Look at what he says. Through faith in Christ Jesus. You know, you can, you can lead someone to Christ through the Old Testament. You know, we, 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 we get this mixed up. We think, oh, the Old Testament, that's old. <laughs> That's, you know, that's, that's the old, we are in the New Testament, this is better. No, it's all the word of God. It's sufficient to teach you to gain spiritual salvation, to rescue your spiritual soul. And you know what, I'll just say, if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, um, there's no way you're ever going to find him outside of this book, the Scriptures. This book alone is God's means to teach you how to be right with him, how to be reconciled with him, how to have a proper relationship with the creator, God. And, and by the way, if, 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 if you're not right with him and you're here tonight, guess what? It, you know. You know you're not right with your creator, God. You know that in the, in the quiet of your own heart, in, in moments when you're by yourself, you know there's something wrong there. So you need to go to him, and you need to confess his son as your Lord and Savior. Um, because that's the only hope you have. The only hope you will ever have of being made right with God is through what he has revealed in his own God-breathed words. You're not going to find it in a seminar. You're not going to find it in a self-help book. None of that is going to help you in the end. The Bible is sufficient to lead you to salvation. And by the way, once you're a Christian, we seem to forget that. Once we commit our lives to Christ, okay, we read the Bible, we come to Christ, and then all of a sudden we're a Christian, and what do we do with the Bible? We shove it aside and we start reading all these silly books that people write. Men, women, humans. These are not God's word. I'm not saying you can't read them. I'm not saying they're not going to help. But our primary source of truth is this book. And we seem to forget that. So he says, all scripture is breathed out by God, is profitable, and then he begins to list off what it's profitable for. The first one there, he says, is teaching. Teaching. We get the word didactic from the original Greek word there. It's, it's specifically and exclusively relates to divine instruction. This is what Paul has intended here in the text. It's a gaining a, of, of knowledge of doctrine, understanding the truth. It's not just a, oh yeah, I, I, I know there's a God. No. It's, it's understanding 
the divine instruction that comes from God. That's why doctrine is so important. And then he says reproof, not just teaching, but reproof. This means to rebuke in order to convict someone of misbehavior or, or even, for that matter, false doctrine. If someone's teaching false doctrine, it confronts our thoughts. It confronts our attitudes, you could say. It, it even confronts our behavior. It teaches us, but it also reproves us. And then it says, for correction, for correction. This word is only used here in the entire New Testament, only once, right here. It refers to the, the restoration of something to its original and proper condition. It's like when you're, you're taking that old rusted out, beat up Mustang and you're, you're spending years, you know, getting rid of all the rust and putting all the fresh paint on it and putting the new engine. And finally, you got this beautifully restored vehicle, right? This is what it means. It means to, refer, to restore it to its original and proper condition. So not only does it confront us, but it shows us how to make it right. And this is where the training the fourth thing here, training in righteousness. It has the idea of, of literal child training. That's literally how it reads in the text. Child training in righteousness. See, what you do in training your child is what the Bible does in training us in right living. That's what it does in living that, that honors God. We're not going to come up with this on our own. This is something we need instruction from God on. And then he says, which is, which is interesting, he says, what's, what's the reason for this? Verse 17. So that, or that, the man of God. The man of God is a, a technical term, by the way, that's used throughout the pastoral epistles for pastors, for Specifically, Timmer, Timmy here. He's Timothy. He's Timmy. He's Timothy. He's uh, Paul's disciple. He's the pastor. Maybe he called him Timmy on occasion. I don't know. But he's called that in 1 Timothy 6. But by implication, he, it's really for every Christian, for anyone who's committed their life to Christ, the man or woman of God. Well, what's... Why? Why is that important? That the man of God may be what? Complete. That the man of God may be complete. Um, some translations read adequate. RTOS in the original language, it means capable. It means proficient. Um, It's also only used here, and it, it really means able to meet all the demands that come against you. This is what the Word of God does for us. That we are complete, may be complete, and then it says equipped for every good work. In other words, you are completely outfitted. You know, if you ever see a war movie and the people are going into war and the soldiers and, and, you know, maybe it's a SEAL team or something and you see them in the room before they go, and what are they doing? They're checking their gear. They're making sure they got all their gear in place. They got making sure they got everything. Why? Because they need to be equipped. They need to be equipped, completely outfitted. 
See, the word is used in secular Greek to describe a wagon that has been fully supplied with everything that it would possibly need for its journey. And Paul is telling us the scripture is able to give you all the equipment that you need to deal with spiritual life here and now. We don't need to go anywhere else. And it's able to make you capable. It's able to make you proficient for whatever comes down the pike, for whatever may come, whatever circumstances. That's the Bible's sufficiency. And see, if a church, a biblical church, has a high view of God and a high view of Scripture, it will believe, as Paul did, that the Bible is not only inspired and relevant, but also sufficient. That we don't need other resources. That we can be fully equipped to serve our Lord and Savior through the Word of God. And then the fourth thing here quickly is authority. Authority. Um, This goes along with this high view of Scripture. In chapter 4, 2 Timothy 4, 1, look at what he says. In light of all this, Timothy, what I've all just shared with you here in verse 16, in light of this, this word of God being inspired and being relevant and being sufficient, I want you to understand that there's a certain authority here. He says, I charge you, Paul talking to his disciple, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. And of Christ Jesus. Who, by the way, is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom. That, that, that's kind of a cage rattling. You know, he's not saying, hey, Timothy, I got something to share with you. No, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. Who, by the way, is the judge of the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom. And then what does he say? He says, preach what? The word. Preach the word. You say, well, where's the authority in this? Where, where are you getting the word authority? I don't see the word authority there, Steve. Well, you know what? There's, there's 33 different verbs in the New Testament to describe teaching or preaching in the Bible. This is one of them. Caruso. It means to proclaim as a king's herald would proclaim. In other words, this is someone who is sent out with a message from the king and he's to go out in the courtyard of the town and proclaim whatever the king wanted him to proclaim. And so he's saying, Timothy, you are sent to speak on behalf of the king of kings and lord of lords. You are to speak with authority of the king behind you. See, that's what it means to preach. That's That's what he's saying. Preach the word. Proclaim the word, the word of the king, not your own word. There's a, there's a sense of formality here. There's a sense of, of gravity in what he's telling Timothy to do. It implies speaking with the authority of the one who sent you. See, we're, we're filled, our, our society's filled with churches, they're filled with pastors that honestly believe that preaching is intended to be a conversation. They don't preach to the congregations. They have a conversation with them on Sunday mornings. That is not scriptural. That is not biblical. Paul doesn't say, Timothy, you know, hey, have a nice little conversation with your congregation. No, he doesn't say that. He said, what's he say? Preach the word. 
Preaching is not intended to be a conversation. That's, it's totally opposite of what it means. It's supposed to be proclamation. That proclamation that must be heard, first of all, and also must be obeyed. See, I, I don't know how many times, and Emmanuel can attest to this, I've talked to the guys in the sound booth on occasion and said, you know what, if you don't do your job right, Let's just go home. Because if people can't hear, or maybe they hear too much, whatever, I mean, that, that, can, that can turn a service on its ear just like that. Very important ministry. You know, we just think you're a bunch of guys in the sound booth, you know, goofing off. No. Very vital to hearing the word that is taught. And not only heard, but obeyed. And that's, that's true this evening or wherever the word of God is taught. We forget this. See, you're not dealing with me. You're dealing with God. Because I'm not teaching you my words. I'm teaching you God's word. So if you got a problem, take it up with him. Don't come after me. Because it's not about me. It's not about you. This is all about God and his word. And as much as I am reflecting the word of God, God is speaking his word to us as if he were here right now. It has to be taught, not apologetically, but with authority. It has an inherent authority because it is God's word. And we're to teach it that way. You know, we don't need to get up and apologize for the word of God. There have been occasions, honestly, when we were going through some of the Old Testament books where on a Wednesday night, you know, I just didn't even want to go through the chapter. I mean, they're slicing and dicing people up and hanging them from trees. I mean, horrible stuff, but it's in the text. So as a pastor who teaches through books of the Bible, I had to deal with the text. And I remember one night specifically, we had like two visitors that night. And I just thought, I mean, what are they going to think of our church? You know, I'm talking about how they cut these people up and spread them all over the place. And I mean, they're only here for that message. They didn't get all the, you know, stuff from the weeks previous. And I remember almost apologizing. Look, this is a really tough text tonight, so don't think that this is all we talk about. We don't need to do that. This is God's word. It has inerrant authority. Look at verse 11, 1 Timothy 4.11. He says this, command and teach these things. Command and, and teach these things, 1 Timothy 4.11. And he says, keep on commanding, keep on teaching these things. That's the word, that's what he, he's talking about in 1 Timothy 4.11. Um, it's the same, same idea. This is not something that we share with people. This is something that we command people. You command people in the church to do these things that the word of God tells us to do. Or over in Titus chapter 2, verse 15, Titus chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says this, declare or command these things. And then he says, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. What, what, what Paul writing to Titus here, he's saying, you know what? There's, there's so many different examples here. 
But when he says here, you know, let no one disregard you, the Greek expression really is this. Don't let anyone think their way around you. Don't let anyone get around what you're commanding them to do. You hold their feet to the flame. Why? Because it, Scripture is authoritative. Paul looked at the Scripture and he saw these qualities, and we're to have these qualities as well. So we see that it's inspired, it's relevant, sufficient, authoritative, and that's exactly what a church is supposed to, to, to be, have the, the, the qualities of Scripture, understand these things. Um, But what are we supposed to do with it? Well, first of all, we're supposed to preach it. I put it down there. We're, just, we're to preach the truth. Okay, we believe all this stuff about the Bible. This is what we preach. We don't get up and preach a bunch of silly illustrations about, you know, our camping trip or something. No, we preach the word of God. We preach the truth. Somebody asked me one time, whenever you're teaching on a Sunday morning, you quote so many verses. And I said, well, that's the only good part of my sermon is the scripture you're hearing. I mean, the illustrations, all the other stuff that I may say, that's irrelevant. We're to preach the word of God. We're to obey the truth. We're to live it out. Why? Because it's God-breathed. We're to guard the truth. 2 Timothy 1.12 says, guard it, protect it. 1 Timothy 6 says that we are to keep the command without stain. We're to guard it, protect it from error. Preach it, obey it, guard it, and then fourthly, we're to pass it on to the next generation. That's what the role of any believer is. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.2 says, And what you have heard from me, Paul says, in the presence of many witnesses, what? Entrust to faithful men who will what? Be able to hide it in their house. No, be able to teach others also. See, this is, this is how the church functions. That's the church's response responsibility that's all of our responsibility we're to preach the truth obey the truth guard the truth pass it on to the next generation this is what it means when it says we are to be as a church a pillar and and buttress or support of the truth when i say a biblical church is marked by a high view of scripture i mean that it believes it understands that the scripture in its entirety is breathed out by god it's inspired it's relevant, it's sufficient, it's authoritative. And a biblical church will always be marked by a high view of Scripture that is an exalted respect for and treatment of the Word of God. I remember when, just last week, when Kai taught his message. First thing he said when he got in the pulpit. He said, I want to thank the Lord and Ken and Steve for allowing me this responsibility. And he said this, I don't take this lightly. And I don't care if you're teaching behind a pulpit or you're teaching children or you're in the nursery serving or wherever you're sharing the word of God, we're never to take it lightly, ever. Because that's having respect for it. Well, how is this demonstrated in the life of, of a church? Well, first of all, Scripture will be the central theme in the services of the church. Um, I mean, what if God sent everybody in our church a letter and said, hey, I'm going to be speaking next Sunday at your church. God's going to show up here, and he's going to preach a sermon. Would we change anything in the service? 
Would we work a little harder at the service? Um, I mean, if God himself was going to be here, well, guess what? He is. He's here now. He's here Sunday. He's here whenever we get together. That's just important for us to, to remember. It's God speaking his word to the hearts of his people. This is about you and God. Whenever we gather as a church, it's about you and God. You're dealing with the truth of God this evening. Whoever's delivering the message is out of the picture. They're almost irrelevant, you could say. I often say, my job is not to be the chef who comes up with the meal and then serves it to the people. My, I, I'm just a busboy. I, I take God's word and I come over here and I lay it down in front of you. If you want to eat it, that's great. If you don't, that's your problem. Take it up with him. Very important. And the job, my job of a, as a pastor is simply to get God's word from the kitchen to the table without messing it up. In 1 Timothy 4.13, this is exactly what, what Paul says to Timothy. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, which we do every Sunday morning, to the exhortation and to teaching. What's he saying? He says, I want you to publicly read Scripture, which in a lot of churches today, they don't do. They don't do. Um, and then exhortation, it kind of means to explain what it means. Explain what the text means. This is what a preacher does. And then how you can apply it. Teach them how it affects their life. And he says in verse 14, don't neglect the spiritual gift within you, that gift of teaching. Don't neglect it. Luther said this, the greatest and, pr the greatest and principal purpose of every church service is to preach and to teach God's word. The moment we, we lose that, the moment we turn a gathering of the church into a, uh, a worship music conference, concert, or a drama play, or whatever, um, we're, we're missing it. We're missing it. I remember one time somebody told me, boy, wouldn't it be nice, Pastor, just one Sunday morning, just have no teaching and just have worship. Have you lost your mind? See, in a biblical church, the stress in the corporate worship will be what? On teaching the word of God. Teaching the Bible. And unfortunately, today's church has countless substitutes for teaching the Bible. Sometimes it's ceremony and ritual. Sometimes it's visual arts with drama and skits or movie clips and dance, whatever it might be. In other churches, they just add more music. But wherever there's a high view of Scripture, the Word of God will always be primary. The focus of the service will be on reading the Bible and explaining the Bible. That's why we gather. That's why we're here. Remember, I went to one church one time, and they had all the, I mean, everything. It was Incredible worship and even had a drama thing and a little video played for advertising some camp or whatever. And I'm thinking, wow, this, I wonder how long this guy's going to preach because there's not a whole lot of time left. 
And he got up for about 15 minutes. And 10 minutes of his 15-minute sermon was him giving illustrations and talking about some trip he went on. And then he read basically two verses that took him about 90 seconds. And one he took out of context for an illustration. And then he said, let's pray. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. What in the world is going on? And nobody seemed to have a problem with it. Um, John Calvin wrote this about the, he was speaking of the Roman Catholic Church, but I think it, it applies to us as well. Although they put forward temple, priesthood, and the rest of outward shows, this empty glitter which blinds the eyes of the simple ought not to move us a whit to grant that the church exists where God's word is not found. For this is the abiding mark with which our Lord has sealed his own. He who is of God hears the word of God. See, if, if you're of God, what he's saying is if you've been born again by the work of God, you will love his word. You will love his word. And if you're sitting here tonight and, and you, you don't love his word, you're not taken with his word, I'm sorry, I don't care what you call yourself, you're probably not a Christian. You can't love God and hate his word. Martin Luther wrote this, the only mark of a Christian church is following and obeying the word. When that is gone, let men boast as much as they please. Church, church, there is nothing to their boasting. Therefore, you should say, do the people have the word of God there? And do they accept it too? That's how you know a true biblical church. Wherever one hears the word of God, there is the church of God. First thing I do, someone asks me, they move away, they say, hey, I found this church. Can you tell me if it's a good church? I'll listen to one of the pastor's sermons. And you almost know immediately where they're going. And if the word of God is first and foremost, then it's important. Well, also, the word of God is will be handled with great diligence and care and respect. That is so, so important that we do that. Um, and we, we strive to do that. I think it was Augustine who said a text taken out of its context is what? A pretext. In other words, we, we have no business. It's, a, it's really the highest form of arrogance to pull phrases and verses out of God's God-breathed context and make them say what God originally did not intend them to say. We try to make verses say what we want them to say. We don't have that privilege. You ask yourself when you're in a church, did I leave understanding the text? Did I leave understanding what it teaches? Or was this just simply another little TED talk or whatever about how to help yourself in your Christian life. Um, we need to be aware of that. So it will be the central theme in the services. It will be handled with diligence. It will be characterized, the church will be characterized by regular practice of expository teaching, which we usually do. We teach through books of the Bible. We think that is, is very important. The teachers will not be afraid to use biblical language. This is very important. Words like sin, words like sanctify, words like glorify, propitiation. All these words are found in Scripture. 
You don't have to dumb it down and say, well, you know, what about the non-Christians? Listen, the church is not for non-Christians. That's not what the church is for. Now, I'm not saying don't invite your non-Christian friends to church. If you want to invite them, that's great. But don't expect we're going to dumb dumb down things so they feel comfortable here. While everyone else who knows Christ is worshiping God, what are they going to be doing? Feeling awkward? Feeling convicted? Feeling a sense of dread, hopefully, over their own sin? Maybe they'll come to Christ. But we're here Sundays, we're here Wednesdays to what? To equip the believers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. This is what God's word commands us to do. We just need to be careful how we want to change the way we do church. And then you can answer those other questions there on your own. As far as adding Freud and Freudian psychology, that's kind of self-evident. Uh, you know, uh, people today, they, they want to make their sin the excuse of how they were raised or who raised them or tragedies went on in their life. And I'm not making light of that because we've all probably experienced that to some degree. But you know what? Sin is sin in the end. And we need to take responsibility for it. We need to confess it as such. We need to go before a holy and just God and ask for his forgiveness through Christ. And he will do so. We don't need to make excuses for it. So hopefully this gives you a little bit of perspective on what it means to have a high view, not only of God, but of his word. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we do pray that we are always growing in our knowledge of your word. Uh, we, we're not a church that's arrived. We have a lot of work to be done here. Uh, we just pray that our desire is to not just have a high view of God and exalt you and your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to lift up your word and to put all of our trust, all of, of our, our faith in Christ and his word, understanding that it is inspired, understanding that it is relevant, understanding that it is sufficient, that it is authoritative. And Lord, I pray that as Christians, when we go out and we share with our unbelieving friends, that we would speak like it is, that we wouldn't be um, shamed into silence. But Lord, your word is truth. And Father, sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes the truth offends. And we need to be okay with that because you'll deal with that. But Lord, help us to be true to your word in all that we do. We pray tonight that you'll take us safely home. Pray for our fellowship now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.